Welcome to Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Dafyomi with modern-day sages of the Torah and the world. I'm Natanel Zelos-Palay. On today's episode, Talmudic heroine, who has stood the test of time and Torah. I think there's a lot of new wisdom and depth to be gained by asking not what did the rabbis think about Peruria, but rather how does it change these narratives that Peruria is in the room, so to speak? For a woman in second century Judea, it was no small feat to have one's name mentioned in the Talmud. Plenty of women appear in its 2,711 pages, but most are identified only through their rabbinic husbands. The Talmud's standard term for wife literally means of the house. But Bruria, a brilliant Torah scholar in her own right, made it look easy. For the most famous woman in the Talmud, though, she still only appears five times. That, along with her sharp-witted, laconic statements, one of which appears in a larger discussion about the precision of language on Eruvin 53b, make her somewhat of an enigma to scholars. But Avigail Halpern, who wrote her senior thesis on women participants in Talmudic discussions, is up to the challenge. Avigail is entering her second year of study for rabbinic ordination at the Hadar Institute's Advanced Kolel while living in Washington Heights, New York. She holds a BA in Judaic Studies from Yale University, where she's focused on Talmud. Avigail, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. As you write in your introduction to your thesis, you are not the first to analyze the character of Beria from a feminist perspective. When did you first meet Beria? And what was the path like from that encounter to your thesis? So I first encountered Breria. It's hard even to pull this out because it feels like she feels so familiar to me. I first encountered Breria, I believe it was when I was 14, learning Indrisha's high school program, which is basically to say that I've known Breria basically as long as I've been learning Torah wow. in a serious way. And for a very long time, I thought of Breria as this really sarcastic, feisty feminist figure. And that really meant a lot to me because I was this like little sarcastic feminist who wanted to learn Torah, but was also feeling very rejected by it. I was in Orthodox day school and like having a lot of feelings about gender and about exclusion. Embraria was really a figure who mattered a lot to me in that context. And by the time I got to college, I was um, at that point in halakhic egalitarian spaces. I'd spent time at Hadar. The questions of, I think I would say women's Torah learning as a project felt a little bit less immediate and relevant. I was learning in egalitarian spaces. I wasn't thinking as much about what does it mean for me to learn Torah as a woman? And I was actually feeling kind of liberated from that question. And then I took a class about gender and sexuality in the Talmud, I think my sophomore year. And one of the seminars was about Ruria. And I was like, oh, I know her. It was always, it was really fun because I was like, oh, I don't have to prep for this class. I, I don't have to do the reading. I know these sugyo. And I went in and I realized that like, and then I had to write a, a final paper for the class. And I realized that if I looked at these stories, the common theme that comes out wasn't Breria learns Torah. The common theme was Breria uses Torah to tell men how to be better. And I started by writing a paper in that class and the project really grew in no small part because I wanted really to make more meaning of it than Breria isn't actually as much of a feminist as you thought. Sorry, have a good day. And that, that particularly came out of the um, Hadar colloquium where every year Hadar has an alumni Shabbaton. And one year, I think my junior year of college, maybe it was my sophomore year, one year they had, a, the Friday afternoon before, they had an alumni colloquium where some of us in small groups presented work we were thinking about and got feedback. And I remember I presented this, what is now this chapter, but was then a paper. And Reverend Peter Richman at one point said to me, like, well, why do you think Breria would do that? What do you think she would want? I realized that I had grown so distant from feeling like Breria was this live character in my life who I cared about. And I wanted to go back to Breria being someone who could really bring me meaning and inspiration and who I felt was part of the Torah world that I was in. And I wanted to reject some of the academic distance that I had taken on 
and instead turn this into a way of thinking about learning Torah as a feminist, as someone who really cares about it, and not just as a way to tear down. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And how does your take interact with earlier work? So the main project of my thesis was to look at women figures in the Bavli who meaningfully interact with rabbis about Torah. So that's not just stories about women, but women who are having interactions with the people we would call Hazal around Torah content. And Breria is definitely the best known of these figures. She's by far the most famous, but I also studied stories about Yalta and the Caesar's daughter. And my central goal in my thesis was to look at the modes of approaching women in the Talmud that Charlotte von Robert has characterized as apologetic. So Charlotte von Robert has characterized basically two existing modes of looking at women in the Talmud as firstly, there's a, the apologetic mode, which basically defends the rabbis in the way they relate to women. Say they're proto-feminists based on either the context surrounding them or the texts that preceded them. And her second mode that she defines is polemical, which basically assumes that rabbinic texts are fundamentally and irredeemably sexist and approaching them from that lens. So most work on these figures, and Brewery in particular, can loosely be sorted into one of these two categories. And I was looking into the stories I analyzed to see if I could pull out a third way of understanding women in the Talmud, try and move beyond the question of what did the rabbis think about women? What did the rabbis think about women doing A, B, or C as the defining question of whether and how to learn Kabbalah as a feminist? Because I thought that that's actually the wrong question. And so I tried to analyze these women characters in the academic mode of assuming that about these stories, that someone or probably many people made editorial choices about them. They're not a historical transcript of actual events that happened. And therefore the nature of these stories themselves and the language they use and the themes and allusions in these stories, like any literary text, have a lot of richness to communicate by looking at these as texts as stories and not just as, well, why would Breria choose to do that if we say that someone wrote the story about Breria in which she does this. And with Breria, so much of the scholarship, for example, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Adler's major groundbreaking article about her, which treats Breria as this subversive feminist character who's basically pushing back against the fundamental sexism of the rabbis, which she identifies and she doesn't like. Or alternatively, some scholarship like Daniel Bayarin's work sort of loosely views Breria as a figure who's a means for the rabbis to work out their anxieties about what it would mean for a woman to interact with Torah or to have sexuality in the Torah space and questions like that. But what I found in actually going and looking at the stories and existing scholarship on them is that with basically one exception, most of the Bosley material about Breria and also the material that follows actually doesn't have as its main focus her Torah scholarship. Breria quotes a lot of Torah, but she's basically doing that to push men to improve their behavior. And I think that what's going on with her character is not necessarily that she's this bold feminist Torah scholar figure, which is how I was first introduced to her, but rather her role is to speak in the language of Torah to the rabbis, since that's their primary language, in a way that tells them you're behaving wrong, here's actually the moral or right thing to do. And that was a hard discovery for me for a while, since it had meant a lot to me to think of Breria as this sarcastic woman who loved Torah, and she was fighting for her right to learn it. But I think there's a lot of new wisdom and depth to be gained by asking not what did the rabbis think about Breria, but rather how does it change these narratives that Breria is in the room, so to speak? Because that brings us to the place of asking not, like, what would Rabbi Meir think about me if I walked into his Beit Midrash, but rather what does it mean for the project of Torah that I'm in this Beit Midrash learning it, which I think is a really interesting and fruitful avenue. For sure. It was really, first of all, very enlightening to, you know, read your summary of the existing scholarship. Also, just the way you looked at it is just kind of very refreshing. Chronologically speaking, Beria first appears in the late Tanaitic work known as the Tosefta, and in a rather obscured corner of it. In the midst of a very technical discussion in Tractate Kalim, which means vessels, about when a large jar is susceptible to tuma or ritual impurity, the Tosef decides the opinions of a few rabbis before quoting the words of Rabbi Chalafta of Kfar Hanania. Rabbi Chalafta reports through another sage named Shimon ben Hanania the opinion of the son of Rabbi Hanania ben Teradion. 
Then, unexpectedly, he adds the opinion of Rabbi Hanani ben Tradion's daughter, whom we know from elsewhere is Bruria. Even more unexpectedly, the Tosefta concludes with the words of Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava, who says, his daughter, i.e. Bruria, ruled better than his son. Later on in the tractate, the Tosefta cites Bruria by name, and again adds a statement of endorsement by a male rabbi, this time Rabbi Yehuda. It's easy to look at these texts and be heartened by the fact that the opinion of a woman scholar of Torah is explicitly valued by another endorsing sage. But as you point out, a more careful reading suggests that the redactors of the Tosefta assumed that Bruria could not possibly be correct of her own accord, and thus needed a male authority to grant her opinion legitimacy. Thank God, and thanks to the many women in the last 50 years who fought for change, we live in a time when women can be Torah scholars and debate men about Torah without the latter's stamp of approval. How does your realistic, rather than apologetic, approach to the Talmud's view of women shape the, the way you think about women's Torah learning today? Well, I think that the key thing in both looking at women in the Gemara and looking at women's Torah learning today is to try to just look at what's really happening. And obviously, we all do that already. We come in holding our own values and priorities and biases, but we can try to look clearly at the situation anyway. And thinking about my own experiences as a woman who was really, really blessed to come up in many Orthodox feminist Torah institutions, which have been really transformative of the landscape and really trailblazing. And I'm now mostly situated in gender egalitarian Torah spaces. And I'm so grateful to have had those opportunities, which are really so new and radical in, in the context of all Jewish history. But I also hold that gratitude and excitement and all I've gained in those spaces alongside the ways in which they're still imperfect and in which the state of women's Torah learning, even in observant and feminist and even fully gender egalitarian context, still has a lot of growing to be done. And the other main thing I think about in terms of learning about Talmudic women is the question of ancestors. And it seems to me like one of the main motivations behind so much of the scholarship on women in the Talmud is the quest for women who love Torah to find ancestors for ourselves and to see that we're not the first women to, who want to engage with Torah. And even more so, this extends to wanting to see that we're not the first women to be hurt by and hurt through that desire to learn, and that that's always actually been a site of struggle. And I think that one of the big things I was trying to work on when I wrote my thesis is how much and in what ways can we see these women as our ancestors if they're actually really different from us? What if they wanted totally different things? If they're actually not portrayed as hurt or alienated in the way that we ourselves might have felt when learning these texts? And what if they never existed at all and they're actually characters crafted by redactors? And I'm interested in seeking out the ways in which these women can meaningfully be ancestors to and teachers of women who love Torah today, even if they turn out to be totally different from us. And even if they're not proto-feminists from hundreds of years ago who are angry at their exclusion, and even if they're not historical. And where that leads me also is to seek solidarity and common cause with other women who love Torah today, even if we ourselves between us have radically different views on our own exclusion and inclusion within Torah learning spaces, and also on where Torah learning should lead us. And I want learning Torah itself to be able to be a powerful force a powerful connective force. All right, it's about time we talk about our Masechta. On Erevin 53b, the Tanaitic sage Rabbi Yossi Aglili encounters Bruria on the road and asks her which road he should take to get to the city of Lod. Bruria replies in an unusual way. Calling Rabbi Yossi foolish Galilean, she admonishes him for using too many words to talk to her, citing a Mishnah in Tractate Avot that warns men against talking too much with women. As you note, Bruria's sharp rejoinder is clearly dripping with irony. It's just really difficult to tell which way she's going. Is she being sarcastic, jabbing of Yosef for his foregoing of pleasantries by pointing out that if he's so pious, he could have spoken even less to her? Or is she not so gently reminding him of that Talmudic dictum 
aware of the irony that she is violating that very dictum by citing it to him. The Breweria scholar, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Adler, believes it's the former. But you disagree. What, if anything, do you think feminist literary criticism loses by assuming women of the past had similar sensibilities to those of the present? What do we gain, and perhaps lose, by integrating perspectives of women across time and place? So I think the main question here isn't as much what did Breweria mean when she said that, I think the main question is why would the male composer slash compiler slash editor of this text put this anecdote here and phrase it in this way? And so Adler, who's such a groundbreaking feminist scholar and her work has been so influential, says in her article that we've been referencing, she says, quote, Rurius speaks ironically to the obtuse Radiosi. In response to his zeal, she exposes the sexist dictum and teasingly reproaches its adherent for not observing it, unquote. So when I was first introduced to Breria at Drisha in high school, this is basically how I learned that story. Breria was like me and all of my feminist teenage friends and my teachers. She was looking at this text, said women shouldn't talk so much or do not speak so much to women, which is maybe an important distinction. And Breria's looking at this text. She's angry about the sexism of both men and about rabbinic texts specifically, and she's not afraid to express that. And it really meant a lot to me at that time in my life to see a lot of the anger I had about men in Jewish contexts and the sexism of rabbinic texts. It meant a lot to me to see that reflected in this text. And like I said before, that sense of kinship with Breria isn't something that I want to give up easily. But I also find Adler's analysis ultimately unsatisfying if we are coming from the assumption that someone who was not Breria, and almost definitely a man, at least chose to put the story into this form in our Gemara. And certainly the Gemara is a really complicated and multivocal body of work, and it's hard to make definitive statements about the goals of anyone editing it. But I certainly think that it's more likely that a story that is actually supporting rabbinic rules would make it into this text than one that's challenging them. Which pushed me to ask, what if Rory isn't actually being sarcastic here? What if we read this totally straight face? Because what better way actually would there be to shore up the legitimacy of a ruling like don't talk to women so much than to have a woman herself enforcing that? That would offer sort of implicit refutation of any sort of squirming discomfort that even pre-feminist people might have felt at that. And so I'd say it's actually not clear that it's ironic at all much as I'd like it to be, especially in light of all of the other places that I've looked at, where Breuria is correcting the behavior of male rabbis in ways that are clearly unironic. And I think, again, that the main issue here is really our desire and our need for ancestors. And I'm reluctant to say Breuria wasn't sarcastic, Breuria wasn't angry, because having seen Breuria that way really does a lot for people, and that's important. But even in my non-ironic reading, we still have Breuria here as a woman who knows this mission from Avot, even if she might not actually be objecting to it. And we have this woman who knows this Mishnah, just like I know Mishnayot. And so at the end of the day, even if I don't necessarily think that it's shot of the Sikhi that Breria is speaking ironically, it matters that for women for decades now have been learning the story through that lens. And in my opinion, that happens in no small part because that reflects how we feel when we learn it. And in my experience, in some contexts, this text is really a classic and central text of what it means to learn Torah as a woman. And part of that is the assumption that there's irony and that there's anger in this story. And it's because we feel that anger and we want that irony that that's developed. And that's now part of this story, whether or not that's shot in the text. I don't think we need women of the past or women characters who are, who are maybe not historical to share our sensibilities or our values for their presence to be meaningful and impactful, nevertheless. And this sugya has created the opportunity for generations of women by now to talk about and feel through what it is to be a woman who loves Torah while also sometimes feeling rejected by those texts. And Breria's presence here, regardless of the intention of any sort of writer or editor, or regardless of the theoretical intentions of Breria as a character, her presence here still matters for that, and it creates that space. Wow, what a, you know, simultaneously empowering and also just really sensitive and 
you know, real approach. Immediately following that story is another story about Buria admonishing a man for improper speech. Buria happens upon a man studying Torah in an undertone, and citing a verse from the book of Samuel, warns him that if he does not raise his voice while learning, what he learns will not stay with him. You adduce this as further evidence for Buria's role as a moral educator. As a rabbi in training yourself, how do you see yourself balancing your dual roles as halachic decisor and spiritual teacher, especially in light of the reprehensible, but unfortunately all too common view that women rabbis must work harder than men to prove their erudition in Jewish law? For a really long time, I felt a lot of resentment towards the fact that many of the women's Torah learning spaces I've been in, and even some of the mixed gender egalitarian spaces, have assumed that Torah learned and taught by women, or women's Torah spaces in general, necessarily involve more emotionality, more sensitivity, more spirituality, more softness. And I'm someone who loves to have a massive screaming fight in the Beit Midrash about how to read like two words of the Rambam. And that's for me a really delightful and central and important part of what it means to learn Torah. And I also really identify with the Onion article where the headline is like, priest identifies as religious, but not spiritual. Like I just wanna sit and I wanna learn and I wanna yell about it. And so I really resisted the explicit and implicit messages that the Torah spaces I occupy ought to be more focused on emotional and spiritual experiences than most men's yeshiva typically are. And that has material effects when that happens. It's the true fact that the more hours of the week you spend sitting and reflecting in a group about how you're feeling, the fewer hours you're spending learning the baby drash. And that's a lesson that I and so many of my women peers learn really harshly and painfully for the first time when we go to Israel on our gap years and find that that's, those assumptions are pretty motivating to many of the women's Torah learning spaces in that context. And so that was really shaping how I thought about emotionality and spirituality in learning spaces as this is something I was very, very resistant to. But this fall, a year ago now, as I was starting Smicha for the first six months or so, I was really like got these sudden, horrible daily headaches and fatigue. And it turned out it was fine. I was really vitamin D deficient. I got it fixed. Thank God I'm doing much better. But during that time, really well, like while I was starting Smicha, it was really hard to sit in Chavruta because I was in a bunch of pain and I missed a lot of yeshiva because I was sleeping for like 11 hours a day and I still wasn't feeling alert or I wasn't able to get out of bed some days. And I'm reluctant to make that into too much of a learning experience because mostly what it was was just like several terrible months of being in pain and missing stuff I cared about. And I would not opt into that to learn lessons or anything if I could choose. But what I did get out of it was that I actually learned that I did need people in yeshiva to be asking me about how I was feeling just physically and emotionally and how I was experiencing the world and not just talking to me about the content of the Torah I was supposed to be learning, but what the process and experience of learning was like for me in that moment, which is sort of what this Breria story is about, where she's saying, no, here's how the learning is happening matters also. And that experience has really made me realize that while we shouldn't be replacing Torah learning with conversations about feelings, a holistic feminist Torah space really does need to be one in which people are cared about as individuals and where spiritual and emotional and moral concerns are also integrated into the Torah we learn and in the way we think about how we're learning it. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that was really difficult and to be able to um, to emerge with that idea, that approach is um, empowering. When you read through the Talmud, you kind of get the sense that the Beit Midrash was not such a friendly or comfortable space to be, you know, people getting thrown out of the Beit Midrash and people being called all sorts of insults. Um, and you don't really see the the emotional support that, you know, is a necessary part of being a student and just being in any social group. So thank you for highlighting that. It's really important. The most challenging text about Bruria is also the latest one. On Avodah Zarah 18b, in which the Talmud says Rabbi Meir fled the land of Israel to Babylon because of, quote, 
the incident with Buria, the medieval commentator Rashi relates an unsourced story that when Buria taunted her husband about the well-known Talmudic adage that women are light-minded, he responded that one day she herself would testify to its truth. Shortly after, Buria was seduced by one of her husband's disciples and, amid the shame of her failure to resist, committed suicide. Needless to say, it's a devastating blow to her character, and Rashi seems to add insult to injury by not even bothering to cite a source, implying it is common knowledge. But your framing of Bruria as a moral guide allows you to rescue her, as it were, from the paternalistic moral environment in which she thrived and died. Bruria cannot be taken down as a scholar. She can only be impugned as the rabbis would impugn any other woman in the realm of morality over which they, and only they, reign. That allows you to deliver what I think is an equally devastating blow to Rashi in your final line of the chapter. Quote, A learned woman, even one who uses her Torah knowledge to benefit men, is transgressive, and there are those who must write her death rather than allow her to thrive. Unquote. But at the end of the day, this is a text that causes pain. How has your study of Bruria impacted the way you read, and perhaps fight back against, rabbinic texts that seem intent on hurting women? So the main thing that came out of my thesis project for me was actually that I now push back against both the idea of fighting back against rabbinic texts and the idea that some of these texts seem intent on hurting women. I don't I and mean, I can't know exactly what Chazal thought of women in general or specific women, much as there's really a deep part of me that wants to have confidence that if I met, say, Rebbe Meir or Rebbe Yossi, they'd be glad to know I was learning their Torah and would be excited about that. But I think to think about fighting back is to assume that these are texts that are against me and that I'm outside of instead of seeing Torah as an ongoing project that is shaped by those who learn it. And I'm so, so grateful, like I've said, it was a huge bracha, huge blessing, that I had my serious entrance to the world of Talmud Torah through the context of feminist women's Torah learning spaces, and that's going to shape me forever. But something that I learned to expect in those spaces is that learning Torah is always going to be at least a little bit painful as a woman, and that parts of it are always going to reject me. And I internalized, I think implicitly, that I should expect to always carry a little bit of anger and sadness with me about that. And make no mistake, in those and in so, so many other spaces, allowing women to feel angry and sad without apology about the ways in which Torah and Gemara specifically have painful sexist pieces is really radical and important. But I'm interested for myself in asking, what does it look like to expect and to trust the Torah not to be hurting me? And what does it look like to feel so much a part of the project of Torah that I can find what to learn even in the parts that land really painfully? And a big part of my project with my thesis is saying, what can we learn and create if we focus on how Torah is generated by looking at how it's changed by who's part of learning it, both the figures in the studio who I looked at and the feminist women who are studying it now. And for me, so the central lesson of studying Gruria and the other women I focused on in my thesis is that whatever else is going on in those narratives, the fact that a woman is there and engaging with Torah changes what's happening with Torah. We're able to have this whole conversation about women and Torah learning because there is a woman in these two guilds and it matters that she's a woman. That generates a lot of meaning and interpretive possibilities. And the experiences and identities of people who learn Torah always are going to be generating more rich and interesting Torah because Torah is shaped by those who are learning and teaching it, as is the case in all of these two guilds about Bruria. And I don't think that there's any totally static pieces of Torah. Even the two that I learned that are sexist and that hurt when I'm learning them are still a new and different Torah because I'm learning them, I'm learning them with my women peers, I'm learning them in spaces where I'm welcomed and where people are excited that I'm there learning. And I'm not sitting external to those texts and being rejected by them. I'm inside the project just as much as anyone else, even if that's to heart sometimes. Such a beautiful and an important insight. It can be far too easy to consider Bruria separate from our other learning. Sometimes it feels like Kursu Gyot have some sort of a roof around them. Uh, 
enclosure. Maria is, as you discussed, she's kind of othered when it comes to learning. We're barely 10% done with Thou Feel Me. So how could you suggest our listeners weave these ideas and sugyot into the next six plus years of our learning? Well, you can keep an eye out for Breria. That's one. I think that in seriousness, though, the, um, I think the main thing I would encourage, the main two things I would encourage people to think about as they learn is firstly, who's in the sugyo? Why does it matter who's in the sugyo? What can we learn? There's a lot of sugyot about women. Women are among the people who are marginalized by the text, but there are also others. And I think that by keeping an eye out for the way those people appear, the way they do and don't have voices, can be really generative in thinking about getting meaning out of these sugyot. And I think the other part is to think about, yes, Dafyomi feels in some ways really depersonalizing, both because of the speed at which you're learning every, and everyone's learning the same thing with this huge mass of people. Thinking about the fact that you are the only one learning this stuff who as you today, and that is a unique experience. And thinking of just paying attention to how your own thoughts and experiences and your life inform the way you're reading and seeing that as a possible site for generating Torah itself. So important. I know that that the personalized perspective and, you know, the idea that every person is a really a unique prism on this, you know, magnificent ancient text been really kind of restorative for me. Abigail Halpern, thank you so much. Thanks so much. This was so fun. Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleads on Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you heard, leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. Special thanks to our executive producer, Adina Karp. Come back next time for another deep dive.